We are in the second message in this series, Mark chapter, or the book of Mark, uh, sort of part three. Many of you have been with us for a long time, but we started this last section of chapters in Mark's gospel in a series called The Jesus Revolution last Sunday. And I want to pick up where we left off more or less last Sunday and in Mark chapter 12, you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open up to Mark chapter 12 and we will read these verses. My sort of thesis or a big idea in this series is just looking at the last chapters, but it's really the last days, weeks of the ministry of Jesus where he goes from, you know, friendly territory, being around your friends in Galilee, uh, to being around people who don't like him and what he stands for. And Jesus is, uh, you know, knows what he's in for. Um, but we, we find ourselves in the people, in the, in the, in the, in, uh, the uh, association with the disciples, right? For them, it's a different kind of challenge. And we learn in these last chapters as Jesus, you know, his ideas, his, his vision comes in sharp relief relative to the culture around and we learn who Jesus is all the more and what it really means to follow him. And last week we looked at a message that was titled Jesus and Religion, right? How did Jesus um, confront religion? What were his revolutionary ideas um, about religious faith as he, you know, in many ways called for the, um, the ending of the whole sacrificial system? And this morning in this passage, he's still in the temple courts. It's a message titled, Jesus and Civil Power. Jesus and the State, or you might say, Jesus and Politics. Let's look at this passage, Mark 12, 13 through 17. Follow along as I read. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, this is the leaders, that is, of the, of the Jewish establishment, that's who they are, to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. You know, for, it's interesting, for all the religion that finds its way into political, political discussion, right? Even, I guess we've been full of that over the last half of a year. It's amazing how actually little, in the Gospels anyway, that Jesus actually engages politics, right? When you think of how much he's associated with it. But what you do see Jesus doing, um, and this passage is perhaps top of the list, is he's, he's, it's never a simple answer to a simple question. It kind of doesn't really answer the question here. It's all about raising the stakes to say to people like you and me, followers, what are the implications of your faith, right? That's about, that's what, 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 you have to work out your faith. I think Paul says this, work out your faith with fear and trembling, right? In other words, you need to tease it out. 
You need to work out the, the gospel has implications. Implications in how you live your life. Implications in how you, um, you know, uh, have your relationships. How you manage your marriage. How you manage parenting. Parenting. How you manage your money. How you engage civil society. How you engage a culture. All, it isn't always the same, but we live in one that seems to be increasingly contrary to the ways of God. Right? How do you do that? The gospel has implications. But the gospel isn't always about, you know, fill in the blank and answering simple questions. You need to work it out, right? So Jesus doesn't always give you nice cookie-cutter answers to your questions, and he doesn't do it here. You have to think things out. This is the most, probably the most referenced scripture anyway in, you know, people that write books about how does the church respond to civil authority? How does a Christian engage in politics? I think this would be at the top of the list, but it's interesting that Jesus doesn't give a direct answer, right, to the question. Uh, he actually gives more than is asked for, which Jesus does sometimes. Be careful what you ask Jesus, right? He gives more than what is asked for. But what's so interesting about how this passage ends, right? It's very short, but it says, and they were amazed at him. Now, who's the they? It's not just, uh, you know, his disciples. It's including those who sent to trap him. The thing about Jesus, even those who were against him, who wanted to oppose him, who were looking to defeat him, or in this case, looking to make him look bad among his followers, they knew if Jesus answered this question, you know, really, either way, yes or no, he was going to lose some popularity. But even they, at the end of this passage, it's almost like you, the camera closes up on them and they're like, huh, you gotta, you gotta get, hand it to this guy, right? They were amazed at his answer. So what can we learn from this passage? The first thing I think that we learn, maybe the most obvious, is this. We need to put God in first place in our lives. Remember, the real audience to this passage, and I might say in every passage, really, in the Bible, Old and New Testament, it's the people of God. Yes, this is a book that has the message to reach the world, but it's really written to the, to the insider, to you and me. People show up to church, right? This is, it's to us. What is the message? And the message is this. Put God first place in your life. But let me tell you what Jesus isn't saying here. Often people assume this is what he's saying, Right? That he's sort of dividing sacred and secular real cleanly. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You know, compartmentalize your life when it comes to paying taxes, when it comes to you know, you know, the blocking and tackling of everyday life, the school system, and paying your taxes, and you know, uh, doing your civil duties. You know, put that in this department, and then this thing called worship and faith and Sunday morning, put it over here, and never shall the twain shall meet. And you have your pay your dues to the to the, the man, to Caesar, and then pay your dues to God. And these two things have nothing to do with each other. There's a hard line between church and state, right? We, said, we talk about those terms in our own government, right? Ba you know, we're a Christian nation. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, the whole reason these guys are amazed is because what Jesus does is he takes a big question that's on everybody's mind, even 2,000 years later, which is my money, and how much do you want of it, right? I mean, raise your hand if you love the IRS, okay? I mean, nobody does. In any time and in any culture. And school taxes and on and on and on. But he takes a question that he knows is, is on everybody's heart. 
which is money, and particularly this audience, which is the, you know, his followers who are listening very closely, the imperial tax, which it makes mention of it in this passage, should we pay the imperial tax? It's otherwise called the head tax, and not everybody got the head tax. Guess who got it? Just people who were non-Roman citizens, just people like the Jewish people who were occupied. They were sort of, you know, they, they were occupied by the, by the Romans, and only people like them, conquered people, paid the imperial tax. And it was an offense. It was oppressive. And some Jews chose not to pay it. Many of them that ended up revolting against Rome, there's a, there's a name for this group of Jews. They're called the Zealots. They're the freedom fighters of the first century. And two of them were part of the 12 disciples. If you read the careful outline of the names in Matthew chapter 10, it says James and John and Andrew and Simon. And it says, and Simon the Zealot. That's what it means. And Judas too was a zealot. So there were people who they decided, I'm not paying the tax. I'm going to go live up in the hills. I'm going to go live up like the Essenes. I'm going to go live in a wood somewhere because I'm rebelling. I'm resisting against the nation. Some of those people were Jesus' followers, and they expected Jesus to say, no, we're not going to pay. Don't pay the tax, right? And they knew if Jesus said, yes, pay it, he was going to lose some of his popularity. If he said, no, don't pay it, he might be arrested on the spot by the Herodians, who were not a religious people. They were civil authority. Okay? But Jesus is not saying that. But here's, here's what amazes them. He takes this big question that's on everybody's heart, past and present, which is how you'd your money, and he makes it something very small by putting it in the context for something much bigger, right? Go ahead and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In a manner of speaking, saying, yes, you ought to pay the tax without saying yes. But let me give you the second half of, the, uh, uh, of my, 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 my advice to you. Pay your taxes. But what you owe the state, what you owe the school system, what you owe the water man and the gas man is trivial compared to what you owe God. Right? Because if, if God created you, you, he, you owe him your very life. And if God redeemed you, right? We're talking, this, we're talking to us now. You owe him not just your life, you owe him your love, you owe him your passion. What will he say a few verses later when someone says to him, what's the greatest commandment? He says, let me just boil it all down to you. It's only one thing you got to worry about. Love God with everything you got. Your heart, your soul, your mind, you need to have a wholehearted love. That's what it's all because you owe him that. He created you and he redeemed you. Then they say, huh. That's a really good answer. I don't know that I believe it. I'm not even a follower, the Herodians would say. But they'd say, you know what? That's an amazing answer. That's an amazing answer. You know, I've been, the, the overarching, what is the overarching message of the Bible? Uh, you know, I've, I changed my Bible reading plan a couple, three years ago. Last three years, I have read through the Old Testament twice and the New Testament once or I'm sorry, the Old Testament once, New Testament twice each year. Just different plan. But here's what I've noticed, right? What's the overarching message of the Bible? Well, one you would say, and I would agree with you, is, you know, God loves broken humanity. It's the, it's the story of redemption, and I would have to say that's the overarching message sort of to the world. God loves broken humanity. He sent Jesus, his son, sent the prophets, etc. But in that sense, that's his message to, let's say, lost humanity. All of us were that way at one point. But when I look at the document, 
as a book that's primarily written to people of faith, whereas I look at it as a person of faith, Old Testament or New, the primary overarching message of the Bible, I would say, as I think about it over the last three years, is this. If you took me seriously, my faith, if you took me seriously, people of God in the Old Testament, people of God in the New Testament, your life would actually look a lot different. I think it's the overarching message of the Bible. And if you read the Bible carefully, the sad truth is most people, it was true in Israel's history, it was true in the Gospels, and I think it's pretty true today, most people of faith do not take their relationship with God very seriously or as seriously as they should. God still loves you. But what the message is, if you took me seriously, your life could be so much different. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that the Bible is all about you and making you and me have a good life, and it's, you know, the seven habits of being successful. That's not what I'm talking about. I think the Bible is about God's purposes in, in, in what God wants to do in the world. But what it says is it's an invitation for you and me to be involved in what he's doing in the world. And what I would say the Bible says is, listen, if you give your life to joining God in what he's doing in the world, there's where real meaning and satisfaction are found. It's not found anywhere else, right? The problem with many of us is we're looking to Caesar or the world to give us what Caesar could never give us. That's the story of our whole lives in many of us. And Jesus says, listen, you're wasting your time. Give to Caesar what he means, but what you need to give to Caesar, you're paying your taxes, you're showing up to the PTA, do it. But let me tell you, it's a trivial matter compared to what you owe God. And if you get real about what you owe God and giving him not just your life, but giving him your passion, your love, let me tell you something. You're going to discover the true meaning of life. We shouldn't expect from Caesar what only God can give you. And if you and I truly live that way, this is the overarching message. If I truly put God first in my life, first in my home life, first in my parenting, first in my marriage, first in everything that I do, really, honestly, and truly, right? It's not saying it's, saying it's easy. First in my thoughtless. He's first. What he says is most important. If I truly put God first, I would say this to you. Most other questions, including how do I deal with the state, how do I deal with the hostile culture, most other questions would take care of themselves in your life. Most of the thing that you spent having being anxious about and spending time about and sweating, most of those other things would take care of themselves if you, if I, took my relationship with God seriously. We need to put God first place in our life. Second thing we learn in this passage, when I think about being a Christian relative to civil authority, is we change the world by investing in it, not by retreating from it, right? We change the world by investing in it, not retreating from it. Now, all of that's not in this passage, but certainly it's in the passages all around it. Let me give you a little history lesson about the people of God, speaking of the whole Bible, right? We I mentioned briefly last week the, 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 the book of Jeremiah. But the Old Testament people of God, as many of you know, uh, went into exile, right? They, they failed in many ways as a nation. God said, I want you to be a light to the rest of the world. That was the whole purpose. Abraham was the father of many nations, all the nations, not just Jewish, all the nations of the world were supposed to be blessed through God's relationship with Israel. As Israel honored God and did God's will, the rest of the world would take notice and say, I want what they want. That's the Bible in a nutshell. 
But Israel failed and said, listen, we just like what we, we want to keep all this to ourselves. We want to just focus on ourselves. We just want to stay happy and we don't care about the rest of the world. So you know what God did in his mercy, in his grace? He said, if you're not going to go to the nations, I'm going to take you to them. And Israel was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. They threw into exile and they took the people of God and they brought them in the end of the Old Testament to one of the most adversarial, contradictory nations to the things of God called Babylon. And they said, you're going to live here and you're going to live here for 70 years. And they went from being a people who had power back when they were a sovereign nation, right? They had their own you know, governors and their own, and, and their own prime ministers and they had their own military and they had their own school boards and they had all of those things and they went into Babylon and they had nothing. You talk about a different, uh, a different relationship to power. They couldn't, not only could they not run for office, they couldn't vote, they couldn't protest. You think about, well, we want to have Torah taught in schools. Are you kidding me? They would have laughed them out of town. They said, listen, remember that temple that you loved that we burned to the ground about three weeks ago or four years ago? And you said, think about that. You're not going to have Torah taught in schools. You're not going to vote. Don't bother protesting. And the false prophets came to the, book, to, to, to the people of God and said, listen, this is what the false prophets said if you read the, 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 new, the end of your Old Testament carefully. They said, listen, just stick to yourselves, stay focused, live in your little bubble, and this will all be over in two years. That's what they said, Jeremiah 28. And the prophet Jeremiah comes to the people of God and says, listen, don't listen to those lies. Let me tell you what God says. You are all going to live out your natural lives right here in Babylon. You're never going to see Jerusalem again. Say goodbye to the temple. Forget about those days, and it's never going to happen. But he said, God has a purpose for your life, but that purpose is not going to be realized in um, resistance. It's not going to be realized in just hunkering down to yourself. God has a different purpose for your life, right? He's not going to do it that way. He's not about retreat. It's not even about resistance because resistance would be futile. The Babylonians could care less about your value system. What you need to do is you need to engage yourself with the community around you. You need to show God's love, not in your ideology, but in how you live. And this is a paraphrase of, the, of, of, of God's advice. Jeremiah chapter 29. He said, listen, this is what God wants you to do. Build houses, plant gardens, you know, marry your sons and mar off and marry your daughters off, plant yourself into this community, seek the peace of this city where God has brought you into exile, and as you seek the peace of this city, you yourself will find peace. The interesting thing about the, the, the exile of the people of God was this those 70 years when they had no political power, they had no uh, civil influence whatsoever, those 70 years when all they had was their own witness, their own power of God in their own lives, brought through in everyday ways to their community was some of the spiritually richest time that the people of God had. And when those 70 years were over, it was one of the great revivals in Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll talk about it this fall as a congregation together, right? When they were out of power, when they weren't in power, right? Other words that Jesus uses, 
parallel passage. Matthew chapter 5. Turn there quickly. This passage really is a parallel passage. How does the people of God, you and me, relate to a culture, a civil authority, that may be adversarial to our way of life? You know, there are times in the history of the people of God, even in American church, where the culture is sort of, you know, walk lockstep with our, with, let's say, Christian values, with what God wants. And, and when that happens, hey, let's ride that wave. But as many of you know, parents in particular in this room, things are changing rapidly. And we are living in a culture that's changing so rapidly that is very contradictory to the ways of God. And the question is, how do we relate? How do we do it? These words in Matthew's gospel, many would say, were written because in Jesus' day, things were so adversarial. They had zealots, as I mentioned. There were freedom fighters. And they thought that that's what Jesus was about. And Jesus says, listen, let me tell you something. I'm, I am a revolutionary. But my revolution is not about picking up guns and swords. It's a different kind of revolution. This is what he says, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. What? Now some of these are idioms, they're sayings. What is, I don't think people are walking around slapping each other in the face. What's Jesus saying here, right? First of all, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that's directly a quote from the Old Testament law, both Deuteronomy and Exodus. And you might say, what a barbaric society. That that's really how they did it. If, if, if you were out there in a fight, and D.R. and I were having a fight, and I knocked his tooth out, then he could knock my tooth out. What a barbaric society. That was the law of the Old Testament. Let me tell you what the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was. It was a compassionate law. It wasn't so much about what it was saying is this. See, some of you say this in our culture, and it's been on going on forever. It's human nature. I don't get mad, I get what? Even, right? You knock my tooth out, Solowski, I'll knock your eye, both of your whole all of your teeth out, right? And yeah, I'm Italian, that's right. The 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 listen. The eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a compassionate law that said, listen, you should not overreact in your seeking justice. And as time went on, by the time you got to Jesus' day, there was things evolved. It went from an eye for an eye to monetary compensation. If I knocked your eye out now, I didn't have to take your eye. I would give you a monetary compensation. But Jesus says, I'm going to take this one step further. Forget about both of those things. I'm going to substitute for monetary compensation that you suffer the loss and seek no recourse at all. The summary, verse 42. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who... Listen, go ahead and suffer the loss because in suffering the loss, whether that's an injury to your honor slapping someone in the face, whether it's some litigious kind of effort, 
you know, suing for your cloak, or making you walk an extra mile, which is exploitation. That's what he's talking about. I want you to be kind of, you change the world by suffering lust because by walking the extra mile with your, the, the, the person who makes you walk an extra mile, the military would do that. That's, that's where that came from. When, when, when they asked Simon to carry Jesus' cross, a military officer, did, you, had to, you had to carry something for military Roman officers if they asked you to do it. That was a law, right? And Jesus said, listen, if they ask you to go a mile, go two miles, because when you go two miles, this is what you're showing to them, that in your heart no one can oppress you. You go ahead and go two miles because you're showing to them that you serve a God who has already met your deepest needs and you can't be oppressed in the things that are most important because give to Caesar what Caesar wants, but give to God your life and give to God your love, right? We change the world by demonstrating love, by serving, not by resisting, not by retaliating. It's a funny way to illustrate this. I, this week I had my colonoscopy, okay? Now... <laughs> If you don't know what a colonoscopy is, and you're too young to know that, here's my advice. Don't look it up, okay? <laughs> Wait for it. It will come, all right? But let me say this. What is a colonoscopy? It's a sensitive procedure in a sensitive part of your body. Let's leave it at that, okay? But as I was, you know, doing my duty at this stage in life... I'm sitting there all, you know, almost ready to roll in, and, and it's one of these nightmare moments, you know, you just, this is the nature of being a public person and being in the ministry, and I'm just sitting there, and all of a sudden, what do I hear? Just about to wonder, pastor, you know, but oh no, is this really happening? Is this like a movie? Not only was it a voice, it was a female voice, right? You know, and you're not wearing a lot in a colonoscopy, that's the same. So, you know, uh, we just go through our brief, you know how you doing, and, you know, whatever. <laughs> but here's the point I'm telling you that story is. After that was over, I'm, I'm in and out of there in an hour. I'm laughing at my uh, friend who picked me up. Uh, you know, uh, here's what happened. Two different people, including the physician who caught wind of that, um, said, oh, you're a pastor. And two different people, including the doctor, we had a brief conversation about the things of God. But you know what? I wasn't in a position of power. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, that's what we're talking about here. Let me, let, me, let me read a note to you, okay? We change the world by investing in it one relationship at a time. Dear pastors, I just got this note. I wanted to share with you a story about my reach card the person from last summer. If you remember that, we started these cards. We're praying for people August of this last year. The woman I wrote down is, her name is Olivia, a neighbor I met while talk, taking a walk last summer. She has a baby about my baby's age, and I'm, and, and I'm incredibly friendly, so we talked, exchanged numbers. While we had intended to hang out, it just didn't happen. But God kept reminding me about her, so I put her on the reach card and prayed for opportunities to have a relationship with her. In January, this January, she went back to work full-time and texted me, and would I be willing to watch her son 10 hours a week? So now I do that. The stormy day last week, two Wednesdays ago, uh, Olivia was off uh, work early, so we hung out at my home. As I was encouraging her about some baby issues, she, I said to her, quote, I don't know what you think about God, but... Dot, dot, dot. And like a true millennial, she replied, I have no thoughts about God. Not negative, not positive, just honest. 
She was a blank slate when it came to God. We talked about Jesus a bit as well, nothing big, but I see that day by day our relationship is growing. It's such a sweet reminder to me that when things are done in God's timing, they are done with remarkable ease. Thanks for all you do. I'm hungry for the things of God. Guys, this is how you change the world, right? This is how you change the world. You do it. To the degree that the body of Christ, listen, I vote. I voted in the last presidential election. I vote in local elections. I speak my mind where I need to, and you ought to do that too. But you know what? It's not always going to be that way. And God did not promise us a civil authority that is going to be friendly to the ways of God. And in many places of the world, it's completely contrary, and it may be so in our day. But what he did say is, listen, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the only thing you need to do to help other people realize who Jesus is is be salt and be light. Bring the kingdom of God in the way that you live. Build houses. Plant vineyards. Have people over your house. Listen to people when you walk along the road and when you walk down the halls of your offices and answer them and say, be always ready to give an answer about the hope that lies within you. That's how we change the world. And that's the Jesus revolution, right? It begins by putting God first in your life. Second, we change the world by investing in it, not retreating from it. Is we, we need to take responsibility for our faith. That's really what Jesus is saying in this passage, right? We need to take responsibility for our faith. Jesus isn't going to give you... A, he, he frustrated his opponents time and again. You know, they say, by what authority do you do this? And he says, well, instead of... He goes, let me ask you a question. And if you answer my question, and I ask the right answer to my question, then I'll tell you by what authority I do this. And it drove them crazy, Right? <laughs> Jesus wouldn't give them a direct answer. But you know, the same came with his disciples. Very often the disciples of Jesus. They were frustrated too because Jesus would not give them a direct answer. But let me tell you the great lesson or one of the great lessons of this passage. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, what are those? Go figure it out. And render to God the things that are God. If he's your creator and you're only alive because he created you. And if he's your redeemer... That means you owe him your love, your passion. How are you doing? You need to figure that out. What Jesus is saying in this passage is this. Jesus very often doesn't tell us what to do. He challenges us to think out our faith. That's what he does, right? Jesus doesn't tell us what to do, but how to think, right? That's what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus. Many, but I, I would love, I got 10 or questions right now. I'd love the answer. Little fill in the blank. God, give me the answer to this question. I would love that my faith worked that way. And sometimes we wonder why our kids, you know, uh, uh, punt when they're 19 years old. Let me tell you why they punt when they're 19 years old sometimes. Because we've raised them to think that faith's about to fill in the blank kind of a thing. It's not a fill in the blank. We need to, we need to wrestle with Scripture, Right? We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need to get on our knees. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for guidance in matters of life because there are things that you're, you will face every day that I will face every day, whether it's how I treat Caesar or how I treat any number of issues, that the Bible's not going to give you a direct answer because Jesus says, listen, work it out. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the living Word of God. Work it out. Take responsibility for your faith. I've gotten questions. I've gotten emails in the last year that I think I, I would say, for the most part, 
ministers like me have not never received in the history of the early of the church. In other words, in other words questions have come up that have never risen uh, in our culture. I mean, think about it. The what things that are going on in our culture. Oh, I'd love to find a verse for you know LBGTQ. Where is it? Right? You got to work it out. We got to work it out. We need to take responsibility for our faith. Jesus isn't saying disengage from the world. It's, the answer is not retreat. Good night. He's called us into the world. Go you and Jesus, Jesus said in the great uh, John 17 prayer, um, as the Father hath sent me, I'm sending you. I don't want to take you out of the world. I just want to keep you from the evil. You've got to have some discernment. The whole point is to go in the world. He doesn't want us to disengage in the world. He doesn't want us to escape our obligations to the world. Yes, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Figure it out. But it's a small matter when it comes to what you and I both owe God. We must bring our faith challenges, right? We must bring our faith, I should say, to our challenges one issue at a time, right? Work it out. Boy, I wish Jesus would give her a straight answer. You know what? He gave you a great principle. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? And that's where he takes the coin. Whose image is on it? How genius. They go Caesar's. He says, great. Caesar created it, give it to Caesar's. But he says, give unto God's what is God. Now, what's the obvious implication? He's saying, listen, you're the image of God, right? You are the image of God. We are made in the image of God. He's saying, listen, give Caesar what Caesar owes. But next time you look in the mirror... There's the image of God. Give to God what God deserves. And if you do that, life will be okay. You'll work it out. You'll work it out. So what's the application? Close this message. Guys, I think when I think about Whitney's example, the letter I just read, it's about waking up and getting real uh, about the world that we live in. It's about getting serious about taking our faith into the world wherever God has called us, right? Yes, vote. Yes, use those obligations, opportunities, why we have them. But we really do it by serving. In our bulletin, it says, says, invite an international student over for Easter. How about that? Change somebody's life. How about praying for somebody like Whitney did for Easter Sunday? We're going to have three prayer meetings right here, very quick and focused the first uh, three Saturdays of April in preparation, maybe the second three Saturdays of April. It's on your bulletin. Pick a name and let's start praying for somebody. Who can you get engaged in? Who can you bring the kingdom of God to? This is how we change the world. Let's pray. Stand with me.